This is Speaker for the Living, a podcast where we explore human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. My name is Seth Dare. I'm here with JJ Jenflown. What are we talking about, JJ? Well, we're talking about a very complicated topic. Uh, so today, specifically, we are going to be talking about First Nations, uh, Native American, and Na- Aboriginal uh, Australians, so just Indigenous populations in general, and human trafficking. So we are taking you all the way from historic slavery to modern trafficking within the sort of Australia, Canada, and U.S. context. Today, specifically, we are focusing on Australia and the indigenous peoples, their their history of being trafficked, and why it is that we, despite sort of this history of indigenous peoples being trafficked within Australia and into current times, in fact, uh, we're going to talk about some stats and whatnot that have actually been verified that indigenous people are, are at a very high risk of being trafficked. You know, why has there been sort of this erasure of the indigenous body from the human trafficking narrative? So it's going to be a, a very complicated day today. I do apologize in advance if we use the wrong term for a particular tribe or sect name, if we pronounce things incorrectly, we're doing the absolute best we can. But Y'all have heard me mess up words that I should know. So (laughs) learning of new different indigenous groups has been very, in terms of proper pronunciation and whatnot, has been quite difficult. All right. And where does our story begin? Ooh, in a galaxy far, far away. You know, so focusing here on Australia, we are starting rather simply with the founding of Australia, which is a very long detailed history you have european exploration of the land starting in 1788 and then slowly the establishment of a penal colony and then a mix into the 19th century of becoming a federation in 1901 and so like a true modern australia coming out of this imperial British penal colony that was established. But obviously before you had the initial settlers, you had a thriving group of Aboriginal Australians, um, indigenous to mainland Australia and the island of Tasmania. So these men, women, and children making up the population of Australia prior to sort of the appearance of Western forces. And while I am saying indigenous or aboriginal people, uh, I'm in the Australian sense, I will be referring to them as aboriginal because it's come out from a number of uh, aboriginal Australian government groups um, fighting for uh, aboriginal rights, that aboriginal is the preferred term. But I do want to be very clear that to say someone's an Aboriginal Australian, it's it's kind of a catch-all term. But within that group, there are other subgroups and, and subsets. There are people who consider themselves to be members of a particular tribe or tied very clearly to a particular area. And so those, indiv- you know, so just to say someone is Aboriginal doesn't mean that everyone is Aboriginal in the same way. 
but there are a number of groups um, spanning everyone from the Bama, which are in northeast Queensland, and the Mungari in southwest Queensland. I'll be talking a lot about Queensland today just because Queensland is the area of Australia that has the historically the, the largest farmland. They had sugar and cotton plantations in, in Queensland, so obviously a great need for labor. We'll be talking about that. But you also have like the Palawa people in Tasmania, uh, the Yamaji in Midwestern Australia. So you do have certainly a lot of, of different groups present historically and into today in Australia. Well, we're going to focus on Aboriginal people uh, just to talk briefly about the penal colony part of it. Yeah. And even doing some research on Australian history and I have been in New Zealand, which also had some convicts that came from Australia and mm-hmm. uh, over to New Zealand. And uh, it, the history, it's interesting because there's multiple contradictory things you can find in the history of Australia. I, I mean, I literally found just looking at a few articles, it was really harsh for prisoners and it wasn't particularly harsh. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, it it seems if you're looking up sort of the history of legalized slavery in Australia. So if you ask sort of the Australian government or their official party line is that there has never actually been slavery in Australia or rather legalized slavery. Nevertheless, Aboriginal people and victims of the descendants of victims of blackbirding, which we'll talk about later, have said very clearly, no, 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 like historical slavery on par with what happened in the transatlantic case certainly happened in Australia and was based in part on this initial bringing in of individuals into a penal colony coupled with this desire on behalf of settlers running the penal colony to colonize the land and also colonize and control the people there so you, you do get, as, as Seth has pointed out, you get this sort of weird mix of convicts who were treated as slave labor saying either, you know, depending sort of on where they were, that they were treated mercifully because they were sent to assigned service and under private citizens or they were sent under chain gangs. But then after a particular period of assigned service, they were meant to be freed whether or not that actually happened or not. Um, they also were not referred to as slaves. They were referred to as indentured laborers or assigned laborers. And once they, you know, had sort of committed the penance, quote unquote, for their crime, they, they were to be freed and then could pull a, a wage. This, so it seems like your your treatment was very much dependent on that end by who you were assigned to or what sort of corporation or business you were assigned to. However, what gets, I think, left out of this is that at the exact same time this is happening, where you have this prison servitude of Westerners being taken to Australia, at the same time, maybe within a household, you have sort of a British robber who's been assigned, because back then the penalties for for things like petty theft were quite high, like a 10-year manual labor service, you also have individuals who have been brought in under a system called blackbirding. And Seth, have you ever heard this term before? Not in this context. Yeah, I had never heard it used actually in a human trafficking context. 
which is very interesting to me. So blackbirding is where individuals are basically lured or tricked or forced, huh, force, fraud, or coercion into signing contracts uh, related to, to going to sea. And then were brought to Australia to work, particularly uh, first in Queensland sugar plantations, and then following the abolition of slavery in the U.S., cotton plantations, because the U.S. still had this desire to purchase cheap cotton, but no longer had a, you know, this, this mass population of people that they could incredibly exploit. So we just sort of shifted production lines. And so, but the people taken in via blackbirding were a mixture of individuals from sort of the islands surrounding Australia or the country surrounding Australia. So reports of Malaysians, Timorese, uh, Polynesians, people from Papua New Guinea, Kiribati, Fijians, um, various little uh, micro-Asian countries mixing and working and, and being forced to work with members of this penal colony. And this is men, women, and children who, who were brought to work on the plantations forcibly. The, a lot of the details I'm getting are coming from a phenomenally researched documentary called Servant or Slave, where they talk about Aboriginal children, but also sort of these children that were indigenous to other countries that were then forced in and brought in and into Australia. And then mixed then in into this third group were Aboriginal Australians who were captured, taken away from their families, and put into forced labor. So I think it's quite interesting in that you do have a, in Australia, you have three groups of people being held in different forms of slavery. And as we've talked about before here, within slavery context or within trafficking context, it's not uncommon for sort of a hierarchy to develop. So what you have here then is then you have Aboriginal Australians, you have the quote-unquote blackbirded people who, who are brought in uh, from other countries against their will, and then you have members of the penal colony. Of those three groups, though, one has a chance to be free and one has a chance to be integrated. The other two do not. And particularly in this, the reporting of individuals who survived blackbirding, there's been a number of oral histories done now with the children of laborers who, who survived Something about 30% of arrivals died on plantations due to malnutrition, mistreatment, and disease. Unmarked graves continued to be found. This continued into the 1900s. It wasn't until 1901 that they actually had a Pacific Island Laborers Act in Australia that removed indentured laborers being held in the country. And then individuals held under this blackbirding system in country were forced. Uh, they were told they could only speak English. They were not to talk to other individuals uh, from the same area that they were. They were not allowed to practice their religions or traditions or their sort of historic dress. Instead, they were, were forced to sort of outwardly assimilate. And mixed in with that then is that you have then the continued 
slavery and forced taking of Aboriginal children specifically that continues into the 1980s. So it almost seems as that as each form of labor dies out, so your penal labor labor starts dying out, move to kidnapping and enslaving individuals from from nations surrounding Australia. That labor starts to dry up or die out, move on to Aboriginal life. So it, it's quite interesting to me, though, just sort of the different stages and, and the limits within Australian sort of slavery and trafficking history. And I will, despite Australia not saying that this was legalized slavery and the term that we normally use to refer to as slavery, quote unquote, I, I will say I'm going to use slavery to refer to the pre-1901 acts only because while it was listed as indentured servitude, it was unpaid work. There are documents going all the way up to 1901 of how much you could get for individuals and ideal individuals, what what people would want, you know, to purchase. Um, and in fact, I found one and we'll link it to I found one particular detail of billing of, you know, looking for hiring, pollen, not hiring, but wanting to buy, you know, uh, a Tahitian woman for thirty two dollars because of, of they were considered beautiful and could also work in cotton plantations. And so I'm going to continue to call that slavery because you're not receiving any wages. Legally, you're tied to the land of your quote-unquote owner, and you're literally being bought and sold on an open market. That, to me, whether or not Australia says it was legalized slavery, is legalized slavery. Well, and it's where we use different terms for different things. Like yeah. uh, after... The Civil War, where chattel slavery was officially ended, but then you had other forms of slavery like peonage. Yeah. And in the case of Australia, it looks like you have a mixture of like forced indentured servitude and peonage, where they're given to private employers. As far as that goes, the first fleet of ships uh, with uh, convicts and, and other people there were free people as well, was in 1788. And penal transportation went on until 1868. And there was over 160,000 people, about 20% of them women. Now, part of what's interesting here, England did away with chattel slavery and enforced on the high seas that other countries would end the slave trade, like it would inhibit the slave trade worldwide. Mm-hmm. And yet, they're facilitating a form of slavery until 1868 after that. And I think this is also sort of a interesting moment to reflect on the sort of social norms or maybe the sort of common behavior that was, that was present. Because you also have race-related laws happening in Australia as well. Mm-hmm that are very much tied to colorism. So this idea of, you know, to be to be white in Australia meant that you had opportunities for marriage, schooling, freedom, you know, that sort of thing. Whereas to be aboriginal or to be an an individual held in slavery 
meant that your legal status, even though, you know, were, were questioned. And so these people of color who all of these individuals were, were often thought to be inferior. They were positioned as not being worth outside of a servant position intermingling with, with the Europeans, quote unquote. And so as a result, you know, no access to schools. There's also mass segregation happening going on until sort of in many places until the 1990s, actually, uh, and actually rules related to this idea of intermarriage. So that you could not marry um, a white Australian. And that's when you see sort of the rise of, of white Australia. There was actually a nationalist, a nationalist movement in the 1900s again as well, right around the time you have this idea of, well, what are we going to do with the indentured servants, quote unquote, the slaves that we have left? And that was that, oh, we're, we're pushing for a white Australia. And there's a historian, Charles Bean, who defined the early intentions of the policy as a vehement effort to contain a high Western standard of economy, society, and culture. Necessitating at that stage, however, it might be camouflaged the rigid exclusion of Oriental peoples. Because maybe that's a that's an additional thing we just have to mention really quickly is that you do see sort of a rise of Southeast and East Asian uh, men and women coming into the country, actually starting at around around the 1860s, but then a, having a, a mass resurgence and in the 1890s. So you have Australia is interesting. It's got this big mix of people and groups but moving in different groups and intermingling but very much now being forcibly segregated so jj from one another where all did the uh, european immigrants go i know part of it was around sydney and uh, where were the aboriginal populations located okay so this is this is an interesting this is this is a rough one luckily for those of you at home i found an interactive map that I'm going to link to you. Now, if you've looked at a modern map of Australia, oh, you'll know yeah, there's a lot. Well, you've also there, there's there's a lot of land that there's not a whole lot on. Most of the population yeah. is along the coast, and most of it is on the east coast and the southeast. Yeah. So basically, what you have is you have Aboriginal peoples living in different areas across Australia. Hence, again, why you have people sort of tied in terms of their identification. Uh, very much to geographic location, right? So this idea of, well, I'm, I want to make sure I pronounce this correctly. Like I am Murray because I live in Southern Queensland. And that's an, it, it's, it's a term that ties to kangaroos and groups of populations. So you have, for the most part, nomadic peoples who are, traveling throughout Australia, but traveling in areas that actually are livable. So that have access to, there's a big issue in Australia with sort of access to, to clean and potable water, uh, access to areas where some food can be grown or, or animals are present. Now, once the British arrive, well, the British are coming yeah. Oh, wait. Well, it's, it's That's super American not different, history. basically, from, well, it's not that different from the colonization of the Americas, either. So once colonial governments arrive, they arrive in what they call New South Wales. 
okay, with the idea that they're going to establish a, a penal colony, but also they're going to do some sheep farming because it seems like that's a good place to work and have grazing land, right? So they bring over men, they bring over sheep. The sheep do really well. Guess sheep really like Australia. Didn't know. And the so more and more settlers come, start claiming land. They push more and more increasingly inward, away from the coast. That So the colony spreads. That then causes mass migration, where Aboriginal people have to move then to a new land. Settlers tried to justify this to themselves because they were like, okay, look, Aboriginal people are nomadic. It's not like they have a claim to the land. They say they don't have a claim to the land. They leave. The Aboriginal response is, yeah, dude, we leave every couple of years to let the land replenish itself, and then we come back. You're putting sheep on it forever. That's not the same. But, you know, eh, colonizers don't really seem to care about who they're colonizing. They increasingly push in. Um, mixed in with this time, as with most cases of early colonization, with populations that haven't had, I mean, Australia is an island country that haven't had a lot of outside uh, uh, contact, uh, mass spread of disease, as well as then food shortages because of this this force away from their land. Then you have Aboriginal groups that end up in violent clashes over one another as they move more and more towards the middle of Australia because they are fighting to keep land and hold land. The minute fighting breaks out, you see the bringing in of British militias uh, who commit massacres against Aboriginal groups because they wanted them to, one, give up their land, but two, to sort of end this fighting. But, you know, so you have a population that's been taken apart by violence, but also, you know, chickenpox, measles, influenza, you know, things that this population had no, no immunity to. Then people are being forced to travel, so you have a drop in birth rate. Then finally, what happens is you have European, uh, the European settlers deciding that, hey, boom, we figured it out. We're just going to put you on reservations. So these forces, literally physical forces, um, moved Aboriginal individuals to particular areas, but just like we saw in the colonization of the Americas, there they forced tribes to intermingle and mix. They moved maybe one tribe onto another tribe's ancestral lands. That caused increased conflict. And there are some really nasty, nasty stories of the mistreatment that happened even on reservations. In particular, uh, the apparently it was not uncommon for locals, local European settlers around a reservation, if they decided they wanted the land that these individuals were being forcibly held on, uh, that they would go poison the water source or poison the well there to get rid of that Aboriginal population. And it's estimated that between 1788 and 1900, uh, all of this, this sort of combination of things led to the Aboriginal population to decline by about 90%. 
so going into the big thing I'm going to be talking about today, which is sort of the modern human trafficking of Aboriginal Australians uh, and, and the sort of East Asian Pacific Islander group, is that there's this long history of there is a population that, that owned this land, that this was their country, that was largely wiped out, then enslaved. The survivors were enslaved, and the survivors continued to be enslaved under legal forms almost into the new millennium, and that now human trafficking has sort of continued to, to chip away at this remaining population. And we don't talk about it, which is crazy to me. I know at the University of Sydney they have a class on it, but that's all I, you know, the fact that Aboriginal Australians were just repeatedly just hurt. Well, JJ, that uh, context is really helpful. So what it's does super the, oversimplification. yeah, what, what does the Aboriginal population look like today? Where are people located? That sort of thing. Well, so the largest population of Aboriginals in Australia is still in the Northern Territory. Um, that's about 30. They have about 30% of the population up there. But in most other places, you're looking at a 5% or less population of Australian territory. So really, it you there's such, you know, think about it. It went from 100% to 30, and that's the largest. Um, you do, however, still see the vast majority overall of Australians living in New South Wales or Queensland. But if you know anything about Australian geography, uh, New South Wales and Queensland are very large provinces within Australia. And again, it would make sense because this is the area where a lot of individuals were taken um, to work in um, sort of factories and working in, well, first initially working in, in sugar plantations and cotton plantations, but eventually working in factories and whatnot. So Queensland is probably the most famous. It's got the Golden Coast. Uh, that's where Brisbane is located. The Northern Territory um, are both facing Papua New Guinea. And then the New South Wales area, that's where you have Sydney, you have Melbourne. It's, it's a much more sort of industrialized area. But Western Australia, which used to have a, a large population of, and South Australia, a large population of Aboriginal individuals, largely because of the Great Australian uh, Bight, which is, which is a, you know, water, and then also Tasmania, the island of Tasmania, which is considered part of Australia, um, have less than 5%. Uh, Aboriginal individuals present there. The largest tribe remaining um, live around Alice Springs, which is also then located uh, in the Northern Territory. But so you see sort of areas clinging to trying to, to cling to, to what culture is still present, but you're looking at about only like 3% of the entire population of Australia overall being Aboriginal. Um, and then whether or not, you know, do, do they speak the language of their initial tribe? Do they live, you know, on, on tribal lands or, or not? That is sort of um, a mix. If, if anyone is really, really into this, there are 
um, a number of books that I would I would really recommend. Um, the biggest one being by, by David and Davidson and Valquest, which came out in 2017, which talks about sort of the um, the history of Aboriginals in Australia, and then what sort of has happened to to that group. So you do see um, Aboriginal rights like rising, um, the spread of like the acknowledgement of Aboriginal art, uh, culture, people no longer, starting in the 1960s, were now legally allowed to, you know, teach their school, teach their own languages, um, that, that sort of thing. And then there's been a number of sort of now Australian celebrities that identify as, as being Aboriginal. And so that's been helpful. A number of politicians, uh, a number of famous authors. There's a um, an essayist named Noel Pearson, who I actually really, really like and really enjoy. Um, his, his, he has a book called Up From the Mission that I've had assigned a number of times for different classes I'm in. It's always phenomenal. But so you, it, it's very much still, though, a... small distribution, shall we say. It, it is definitely a, a group of individuals that have been held into these tiny groups and communities. We're going to be talking about the stolen generation as part of the more trafficking response. But the big thing I want to m make clear is that overall, compared to the norms of Australia, Aborigine people who identify as being Aboriginal are twice as likely to report bad health. They have so super uh, high health issues, low life expectancy, uh, can, low levels of, uh, of education considered with the Australian population as a whole. They're more likely to leave school early and they experience high unemployment compared to the national average. And so overall, uh, they're also incredibly likely to uh, be imprisoned. The imprisonment rate for Indigenous peoples is 14 times higher than that of non. There is also repeated, repeated, and we're going to talk about this when we talk about modern human trafficking in Australia, um, repeated issues of sort of stolen wages or exploitation. So a to, to be, I think, you know, I can't speak for that group, but it, it does seem like Australia has been quite unkind, to say the least, and continues to be uh, to Aboriginal peoples in country. Okay. And uh, what are the vulnerabilities today for that population? Okay, so this is something we're going to be coming back to a lot, I think, as we talk about the series. But so in addition to... So let's just kind of sort of break it down. So starting right off, if you are from a population that is colonized or has been colonized, has a history of colonization, and you have sort of this history with, with colonizers, you are likely to view the government with a sense of mistrust, uh, warranted or not. And in many cases, it seems like it would be warranted. You couple that with 
the high rate of being victims of violence and being considered um, more likely to be criminal sort of by, by police and whatnot, leading to high rates of crime and imprisonment, uh, that Aboriginal individuals who, are, who go to court are more likely to be put into prison uh, than other Australian citizens, that makes you unlikely to want to contact police or people uh, to help you. Right, So that's sort of strike one of vulnerability. Two, you're in a non-dominant group. right? You're only 3% of the population. So there's already sort of this feeling of otherness, of being separate, of cross-cultural miscommunication. So you may not be able to pick up on things that are inappropriate going on from outsiders in the group or vice versa. People not may not notice that you are not behaving in a particular way you mix that in with then i think probably one of the biggest things which is poverty and insufficient education that you're that's a massive vulnerability right because what do you do if you are an individual who is forced to live in public housing uh, your parents were the result of the forced school system, so they themselves don't really have strong community ties and were unable to pursue an education. Australia is incredibly expensive country-wise to live in, even in the rural areas. So you need money. You need to make money. You need to make a job. You're not being told to be aware or to be frightened of, of certain things. So you go out and take risks to get a job, any job, and that puts you at severe risk of human trafficking. You add in then the fact that there's this othering going on, so you, you're a fetishized uh, commodity. And altogether, that makes, I think, sort of any member of a indigenous community vulnerable to human trafficking, but especially, I think, in this Australian context. But, I mean, it's the same. When we talk about sort of First Nation groups in Canada, and we talk about uh, Native groups in the U.S., I think it's going to be the same thing, right? Like, we always talk about these vulnerabilities, I think, as, well, what would make you, you know, get on a plane to go to a job that you didn't have, like, 100% details for? What would make you not fact-check something for, like, six or seven hours, right? And I think the answer is, well if you don't have a computer at home and it's hard to fact check and you're 17 and you need work because your dad's a diabetic and your mom's out of work and your brother's in jail, you know, why, why wouldn't you then take that risk? I, I think is the big thing. Mm -hmm. And then you mix in some good old fashioned racism where people won't view you as a victim possibly, even if you go for help. That makes you feel like people won't listen to you or treat you well, and bam. Well, and there's places like uh, Pine Ridge in the Dakotas. I believe it's the largest reservation in the United States, and there's a lot of poverty there. And mm -hmm. until I learned about it from an organization in Fort Collins called Village Earth, I didn't know what 
people have to deal with and, and the poverty and the challenges of living there. In the United States, I, I feel like a lot of us, myself included, have just put it totally out of our minds what what's happening with uh, Native American populations. And so that that's part of the danger is just invisibility, right? Yeah, I think well, I think that's the big thing always, right? Like not being not being seen, not being heard. Mm-hmm. Okay. So do we have uh, trafficking specific information for today? Yeah. So sliding in and and just for the for the sake of time, what I will tell you is so you start sort of this formal trafficking, I think after we I think we can define it after 1901 where it's no longer legal to buy and sell people. And what you then have is what a lot of Australians, indigenous or otherwise, have, have listed as the stolen generation. And so this starts with the government coming in and removing children that were considered to be mixed descent from Aboriginal groups. That eventually then spreads from taking sort of mixed children to just taking children. Uh, the government says that this is, is to you know, prevent them from being abused, but what it actually ends up seeing, what it what eventually turns into, though, is the taking of children, and oftentimes young adults. One of the things I'm going to read is from a 17-year-old who was taken, um, and holding them until the age of 21, and sent into what they called a trust or protective custody where they weren't attending school. Instead, what they were doing is they were loaned out to families to be domestic workers or day laborers. They were not paid. Instead, some of, some of them got like a allowance, but as we've talked about in human trafficking, getting a little bit of money when you don't have a choice to be there doesn't negate the trafficking that's happening. And instead, what, what their wages were meant to be were to be paid in by their employer into a trust because they were thought not to be responsible enough to handle money that maybe eventually they could access. Uh, they never saw these wages. There's a, again, I will, I will reference the really, really good movie servant or slave that, that talks about this sort of directly, but I, I will read a quote directly from one of the individuals listed uh, who, who tells her story in, in this documentary. We used to get up to make butter every morning and do the washing. My job was to get the coal and put in the fire and keep the heat going. We did the odd jobs around and kept that farm going. Instead of playing like kids, we worked. Well, I call it slavery work. When I was in the bush, I had a tree, and because it was shaped like the top of a horseback, I used to get in that tree and make like I was galloping away from home. When you're kids, you just hide. You have to keep going. You have to do things that give you the strength to carry on. And this particular individual, Rita Wright, talks about how eventually she, she ran away from where she was being held at the age of 15 and lived on the streets for a while out of, out of necessity to, to get away from this forced servitude that she was in. And of course, there are, there are reports of a lot of physical and you know mental emotional and and sexual abuse happening there was a report done in 1997 called bringing them home 
that I highly recommend you read, everyone reads, it's from the Australian Human Rights uh, Commission, but they talk specifically about uh, individuals being compelled, being forced to give their children away, quote unquote. I don't know if it would count giving them away. And this, you know, reading this piece of evidence, quote, I remember another friend of mine in St. Ives. She wanted to adopt a little aboriginal baby. And she was telling me when she got this little one that she went out to the mission and said she wanted a little baby boy. The mission, the mission manager said, Mrs. J has a couple of boys already, so we'll take her third one. So they adopted that child. If Miss J would have objected, she said the welfare officer says, well, if you don't give us that child, we'll take the other two. And so literally you have you would have sometimes these white European couples who would go in and say, actually, you know, we want a little girl. And they would say, OK, great. We'll have one for you by this afternoon. Just pay. And. So there wasn't necessarily agreement on behalf of Aboriginal families, although some that were dealing with with mass poverty or starvation did send their children kind of, quote unquote, give up their children to what they thought would be a better life. We've, we've seen in similar cases, I think when we talked about the, the rest evict system is that individuals sending out, um, you know, sending their kids to what they think is going to be a school for them. But instead the, the kids are farmed out for domestic, domestic work. Um, but the final story also is reflected in the documentary. I linked everyone to is from a 77 year old named Felicity Holt who lives in Queensland now because that's eventually, that was not where she's from originally, but she was, she was left there uh, after being taken away from her family at the age of 16. And quote, I just enrolled in nursing at the Cherbourg Hospital because I love looking after people. And they came and took me and sent me to St. Joseph's Convent in Dalby to work in the kitchen. I had no say on the settlement. I wanted to finish nursing and it was devastating to be taken away from it. I did the washing, cooking, ironing. I was getting up at 5 a.m. to milk the cows, and I had to separate the milk from the cream. Then to cook breakfast, get the kids ready for school, make lunches for the kids, cook the evening meal, and prepare things for the following day. By the time I got to bed, it was 10 o'clock at night. It was like slave labor. And she talks about how she was sent uh, under the law, because they considered it a protective law, quote-unquote, uh, for three years until she turned 21 uh, from sort of domestic kitchen to domestic kitchen until she eventually aged out. Um, obviously girls worked as primarily as domestic servants. Uh, boys were usually sent to work in the fields. They were never paid. Those stolen wages have never been recognized. And the reason why this is sometimes then referred to as the lost generation is that thousands of children just disappeared and, and no one seems to know, what happened to them? Did they run away? Did they leave Australia? Were they killed? Did they die of mistreatment? Uh, there's a lot of reporting um, coming out from uh, Lousy Little Sixpence, which was a 1980s documentary that's amazing um, about sort of the history of Australia. And when they talked about that in particular, they detail sort of the the mass beatings and the quote-unquote civilization projects that were undertaken to these individuals to these aboriginal individuals by sort of these western actors 
Um, and in particular, there's there's one thing where they talk about um, the forcing of kids to participate in the pearling industry. Uh, people really got into pearls. You know, I think if you've seen any 1950s mm-hmm. starlet, you know pearls. And so they forced um, a lot of children at first to collect um, just like pearls that had uh, from oysters and whatnot that had washed up on shore. But eventually when that supply had, had dried up because people were, you know, obviously farming a lot for these, uh, they would force Aboriginal um, boys and girls younger because they're thought to have better lung capacity to dive down naked uh, with no oxygen, no snorkel and no masks uh, in the Austra- uh, Australian um, water, which is very cold. And they, there's reports of individuals dying from shark attacks, colds, influenza, pneumonia, and decompression sickness and nutritional uh, deficiency because sometimes they were not paid. Uh, not paid, but like they, they were told if they didn't bring in a certain amount of pearls that they uh, couldn't eat. And so that to me is you're, you're forcing kids into the sea without oxygen to, to dive quite deep um, for, for trinkets and then not feeding them. Yeah. And the modern trafficking has taken the ways now what they call the lost wages generation. And that is sort of the modern human trafficking, you know, as in modern as in today. And that trafficking has, um, from the, from the, from the group anti-slavery Australia is what I, I would really like to focus on. That is coming from individuals being forced into uh, sex trafficking, uh, domestic labor, and then sort of day laboring, who are then unpaid or paid a a pittance because it said that, um, because as this sort of impoverished group that, you know, oh, you should be thankful for the work. Oh, you should be thankful that you're getting paid attention. Um, you do have, if you, especially if you look at the trafficking in persons report, the tip report, you do see Australia reporting a lot of trafficking coming in. So you have individuals coming, uh, primarily some from, from East Asian countries. So you have a lot of people coming in from the Philippines, um, working in sort of the tourism industry. So again, as, as domestic help um, in restaurants and things of that nature. But the same thing is actually happening as well to this Aboriginal population. It's just not as reported. And Australia's uh, refugee policy and the prisons they put refugees in is uh, also uh, very suspect. Yes, very, very much so. But that's a whole other podcast, man. <laughs> yep, whole other podcast. They just, man, penal colonies like make a new pollen, make new penal colonies, and. But this doesn't mean that we don't like Australians and the Australian accent. I happen to like both quite a bit. Oh, I love it. If you knew the amount of terrible Australian television for children I have watched, I would watch Dance Academy to this day. Which, if you don't know, is about a bunch of ballerinas in Australia. Don't judge me. Um, <laughs> it's made for, like, 14-year-olds. I may have just bought the movie. Um, like, I, yeah, it, but I think one of these things is especially when it's a major tourism country right like people come to the u.s to to come to the u.s you know they come they go to australia for some reason i think you have to you have to recognize sort of the history and what's at play there and so 
that concludes our look at our very brief look at uh, slavery and the aboriginal population of Australia. Yep. We even, we even get a siren to signal the end. I know, right? The siren ended, and I didn't make one terrible Crocodile Dundee joke, so really I should get a medal. I don't know if you know how hard that is. Uh, one of A few of the links that I sent have suggestions for, again, can't recommend those two documentaries enough. Uh, I do not recommend watching the Hugh Jackman-Nicole Kidman, Kidman film, Australia. Uh, you think it would maybe give you a nice breakdown? Of race relations in the outback it does not don't do it you'll just be sad and it's long and seeing hugh jackman shirtless isn't even worth it if you want to see an early russell crowe film you could see romper stomper which i remember it being violent and i remember his acting not being very good but uh everyone starts somewhere yeah well better than his singing all right (laughs) And with that, we're out. Bye, guys. Bye. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.